Let's take our Bibles again and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'll be reading just two verses this morning, verse 1 and 2, where the Word of God says, Colossians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, again, as we come to your infallible word. We know, Lord, that it's the word of God. And because it is the word of God, Lord, give us ears to hear it. So, Lord, that we may grow in it, we may understand it, we may live it. And I pray, Lord, that today that you may teach us from the word of God the true identity that we have in Christ so we can live that out. And I pray, Lord, that you would receive all the praise and the glory and honor and that your people would be taught and edified in Christ's name. Amen. So Colossae was a town in the province, province of Asia Minor far north and west of Palestine. The Christians there had heard the message of the Apostle Paul, although he never visited there. The pastor was a papyrus. He came to Paul with a report about the bothering circumstances at the church. Like the false ideas that were being propagated and the teachings that were being dispersed amongst the believers at Colossae that did not line up with the truth of the gospel. He was concerned about the wave of error that ever threatened, that, the, that even threatened some of the, the, the believers and led them astray from the truth. The errors being propagated were a combination of philosophical heathenism, Judaism, elements of the Christian teaching. In other words, that the false teacher was slick enough to synthesize all these teachings together into one that he made up. It showed wisdom and human intellectualism, yet it circulated philosophies that bordered on paganism. On the one hand, the true gospel of Christ simply did not line up with what is called Gnosticism or those who have super knowledge. As I mentioned last week, it was more like God is up here, we're down here, and there's a chain of angels that you have to go through to get to God. And so the old idea of spirituality drastically distorted true biblical doctrine and the Christian way of living. Specifically, it was rooted in a doctrine that robbed Jesus of his central place. And believe me, Jesus is central to the Bible wherever you're reading it. On the other hand, the body of Christ, the new and living organism of which you and I and the Colossians and are a part, 
have a newness to us. Something happened to us. Something changed in our life. Christ living in this body forms a a new humanity and transforms us. And all our old ideas about life, about God, about the way of salvation. The major attack of all false cults and religions is to cast doubt upon whether God is God, whether Christ is God, and that he is sufficient to completely save. Many cults will talk about Jesus, but he just doesn't do enough. Something has to be added to the cross. Something has to be added to the Bible. It's the Bible plus another document or another uh, group of sayings by this person or that person. A cult, by definition, is a religious movement that claims to be a Christian group that deviates significantly from or outright denies the teachings of Scripture especially in its historic creeds and on on specific and crucial points. Groups today include the, the, uh, in this definition, are the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Christian scientists. These groups develop their doctrine through a combination of scripture twisting and extra-biblical revelation. Under the leadership of self-proclaimed prophets such as Joseph Smith and Charles Taze Russell, these folks consistently pervert biblical truth, denying the deity of Christ and the gospel of grace. So it's a tragedy, actually, that Satan has such success in twisting elements of biblical language and leveraging false Christian imagery that lead men and women away from the truth and into these corrupt cults and religious systems, and usually the end result is deadly. So the epistle to the Colossians is really an answer to prayer. It's an answer to the request of Epaphras, the pastor there, and the Apostle Paul writes this epistle with deep concern in order to keep the Colossians and all believers who are going to read it afterwards on track with the truth of the gospel. That is his desire, and that's his intention. But in these first two verses, I didn't want to go quickly over them because you would have to ask yourself, why why does Paul open his letters like this and say specific things in his greetings? And I said, I'm going to spend some time on that and look at that, and I've discovered that it's going to talk about the sender of the letter, which is going to be Paul and Timothy, and then the receivers of the letter, which is going to be the Colossians and every other believer who's going to read this letter afterwards. So the senders of the letter are Paul and Timothy. Now, if you notice in verse number one, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now, we read a passage of Scripture this morning that told us that Paul was not a very good dude. His main purpose in life was to persecute the church, the way. It was called the way back then. It was his his desire to grab people, put his hands on them, and put them in prison. And even some were stoned to death because of his authority. And then God one day 
picked him on some road in Damascus and, and converted him right on the spot when he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul that day went from being an old person to being a new person. Everything changed in his life. And now the Bible says he's an apostle. That means he's a sent one. Paul's apostleship is also, in verse 1, directly from the hand of God, by the will of God. That means that all the events, even his imprisonment, were from the hand of God. If you look at the last verse of Colossians, verse 18, chapter 4, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remember my imprisonment. So Paul is in prison in Rome because he was preaching the gospel. That means all the events that flowed in and out of Paul's life was, was there because God's hand was upon him. But he had a special calling. An apostle was a person who seen the risen Lord. Apostle was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was appointed a minister. And in his ministry, he had the power to work miracles, to cast out demons, to raise the dead. All those things authenticated the apostle's message, that what he was saying was from God and came from heaven. Also, he had the authority of Christ. In the first century, the word for apostolos was used for one who had the right to speak for an authority figure, he's speaking on behalf of Christ who gave the commission to the church that in heaven and earth I have authority, I'm giving that authority to you to go preach the gospel. So that's Paul. He needed salvation and conversion. He needed a new identity in Christ, and God gave him one. Second one, here it says in verse number one, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy is a pretty well-known disciple of Christ in the word of God. He was raised in Lystra. His mother Eunice uh, and his grandmother wrote, uh, raised him up, and they were faithful Christian women who taught him the scriptures. In fact, it tells us in Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, it says there, that from a child you have known the sacred writings which is able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy grew up hearing the word of God. But amazingly, he didn't get converted yet until he met the Apostle Paul. It seemed like under the Apostle Paul's ministry that Timothy came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God and he became a believer and everything changed in Timothy's life and he went from being an old person to becoming a new person and have a new identity in Jesus Christ. So Paul asked Timothy to join him on his missionary journeys. And when Paul was in prison at, in Rome, he wanted Timothy alongside of him. Now it's not necessarily clear whether Timothy was imprisoned with him or was just in a companion and a servant to him that can visit him and come and go. And it could also be that Timothy penned down the words while Paul told him what to write in this epistle. And we know later on Timothy was imprisoned. And according to tradition, after the apostle Paul's death, he settled in Ephesus, which 
a place where he became the pastor and, of course, found a martyr's grave. So both the Apostle Paul and Timothy experienced the reality of newness that comes when one repents of sin and believes on Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They both were rescued by Jesus Christ. And if you look at Colossians 1, look at verse number 13. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. They experienced that, and every other believer since there experiences the same thing. Now, along with the reality of the newness of the Christian life is that you and I are now citizens of two kingdoms, one earthly and one spiritual. To those who have received God's grace through faith in Christ have recently become citizens of the kingdom of God. We're born again into the kingdom of God. However, even though we have been rescued from the domain of darkness because the light of the glorious gospel has shined in our hearts, we still live at the same time in both the earthly and the spiritual. And even though presently we live in the two spheres, the spiritual must always have the upper hand in the earthly sphere. That's what sanctification is. In other words, the flesh must be weakened and the spirit must be strengthened. That's our reality right now. We're between heaven and earth. We're in between. But while we're in between and we're learning how to live in both realms, the gospel continues to instruct us concerning the new position we presently hold as children of God. So this greeting is not just a bunch of nice words to say, hey, how's everything going? It's actually a greeting that points the believers who are reading it to their new identity that they have since they became believers or since they are now in Christ. So you have to know who you are in Christ. If you're going to stand up against what is false, you have to know, first of all, who you are and then what you believe. Both those things are important for you and I to stand in this world while we're waiting for heaven. So the gospel instructs us in our new position. So I want you to think this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you repented of your sin and you believe in him, then you have a new position in Christ. You have a new identity in Christ. And so what is, what is that identity? Well, we're going to see it right in verse number two. What is that? Well, the first thing is this, that our new position that we are in in Christ is that we are saints in Christ. Look what it says in verse 2, to the saints. And what is a saint? Saint in Christ, those who have received him and those whom he has received. See, you could receive Christ, but has Christ received you? Both, both those things are important to know. So it is 
a description of all genuine believers that God does not choose us because we are saintly. He chooses us and makes us saintly. Just like the the beginning of Colossians chapter 1, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, saints by calling. So we are saints. Now, with that designation, you may think that's not destined to. Uh, and like some have said, it is like putting a, a diamond earring in a sow's ear. What they mean is that it, it just doesn't fit the nature of a pig. For it will not be long before the pig is rolling around in the mud again, greatly diminishing the glory of the diamond earring. But in our case, God makes us saints. So nonetheless, you are a saint, whether you want to consider that or not. You should this morning, because the basic meaning of this term is to be set apart, to be separated from something and for something. Now, set apart needs to be understood in two ways. You are the, the saints set apart outwardly, first of all, that the saints then are those whom God has called and who have called upon Jesus as Savior and Lord. So then the Christian is a person who has been separated from the world's clutches and Satan's claim on them. And now they are in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven here on earth. The Christian has been brought into the family of God by the rescuing power of the gospel. So God called out people and separated them from the world unto himself. Galatians says it in a different way. It says, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. That means we stop going along with what's happening in the world and the way the world is flowing, and we start living according to a new kingdom. Usually in theology, set apart connotes a religious idea and also an ethical idea. The religious idea refers to being set apart to God, and the ethical idea refers to being set apart from sinful behavior and conformed to the righteous character of God. That's sanctification. So both ideas are found in Scripture and are necessary for the believers being set apart. The Holy Spirit is the author of one's being set apart to God and righteous living, showing the Christian, now the will of God. We know now what the will of God is found in the word of God. So we're set apart outwardly from the world to God. But secondly, we're set apart inwardly. In this sense, we're set apart from the guilt of sin. Guilt is no longer something that is weighty upon us because of what Christ has done. And also we're, we're cleansed from the pollution of sin that sin can no longer send us to hell. In other words, a separation that has taken place in your mind, in your outlook, in your heart, in your conversation, in your behavior, 
you are essentially, as a saint, a different person. That the Christian is not a worldly person. In other words, he's not governed by the world in its, in his, in its outlook and its mindset. They're separated from that. So a saint actually describes something that has happened to you. We have been set apart for God, and we are made his, and we are his property, and we are his people, his holy people. So saints are just regular people who come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And all saints go to heaven when they die, but they don't become saints after they get there. They become saints now. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church has greatly distorted the world, the word saint. Roman Catholic teaching says saints are those few whose spiritual excellence and merit caused them to be set before the church as models and intercessors. According to Rome, that these saints pray in heaven for those who call on them. They say we can and should ask saints to intercede for us and offer their merits to God on our behalf. That's the current Roman Catholic catechism. So nothing's changed in the Roman Catholic Church. They're still espousing that. But the result is people pray to all kinds of patron saints. You pray to Mary, you pray to Joseph, you pray to Peter. If you're traveling, you pray to Christopher. If you're doing this, you pray to that saint. And so all these saints, they venerate these saints to the status equal to deity, which amounts to their worship in the place of God, and that is simply idolatry. No church or council can pronounce anyone, anyone, a saint, for a saint in Christ are those who are separated, saved by God, to God, in God, and through God. It's all his grace. This is our position in Christ. Saints, we should just stick to the clear teaching of Scripture where it says in Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we should never think of saints as superior Christians who offer their merits for us to God. No, all Christians are saints. Yes, ordinary, regular wrestling with the flesh and sin, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Christians like you and me who know Christ as Lord and Savior are saints. And God wants us to see ourselves as that. And that's the point of this greeting. Every Christian is a saint. You cannot be a Christian without being a saint, and you cannot be a saint and a Christian without being separated in some radical sense from the world because you're different now. The next thing this greeting identifies believers as, if you notice in verse number two, is that to the saints and faithful brethren, faithful brethren, now this is not a separate group of people. God is in the process of building us into perfect saints. 
and he knows what he's making of us, although we are definitely yet in the making. We, we are a building project of God. We are far from perfect. Perfection will come in glory. But God is working on you if you're a saint. And how is he working on you? You become faithful to God. Faithful brethren in Christ refers to those who have faith, first of all, in Christ. And no one can be faithful until they have faith in Christ. So saving faith always sanctifies. And the sanctified want to be saintly and they want to be faithful to God. That's what God produces in our heart. So this is the difference between those who merely profess to know Christ and those who possess salvation. There are several things saints and faithful brethren continually receive while being in the family of God as a saint. And if you notice, saints and faithful brethren, in verse number 2, have been given manifold grace. Notice what it says. It says, those in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you. So they are given, granted, manifold grace, that unmerited favor of God. But if you peruse through Scripture, you're going to find that there's many kinds of grace that God gives. He gives a saving grace. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. By his grace he has provided redemption by the sacrifice of himself. By his grace he has called guilty sinners and made them into saints. But there's also living grace, which is sanctifying grace. It's God's gift to the saints to make them gracious and to make them saintly and to make them faithful. There's also suffering grace. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. We also have dying grace, and that grace comes in the form of understanding in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is also serving grace, where Peter tells us in chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received the special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. See, God has given us this grace so we can simply live our life. We live our life by his power, not by our power, by his power. He changes our mind. He changes our affections. He changes our will to do the will of God, and he gives us the ability to do all that. See, that's God's grace to us. And so what? his grace is so deep that it can never be exhausted. It's an empty barrel. I mean, it's a barrel that there's no bottom to it. It just keeps going. His grace, that's why the Gospel of John says we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You can't exhaust it. It's always available to us, and it's always available to who? To the saints and those who are faithful, the faithful brethren in the family of God. Now, 
looking again at this, the false teacher and his teaching, if we act upon what he says, it will lead us to becoming grace abusers and grace killers. Now, what, are, what is a grace killer? A grace killer is legalism. What does legalism do? It emphasizes works over grace, right? It opts for giving a list of do's and don'ts, whether it would be in a personal realm or a traditional realm, and the criteria is to earn God's acceptance. Do we have to earn God's acceptance? No. The gospel has accepted us in that we're accepted in the beloved. The word of God tells us we don't have to earn anything anymore. It's not works. And then look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Here's the false teacher's works-based system. Therefore, verse chapter 2, verse 16, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath. In other words, you must do these things to be accepted to God by God. See, what happens is that when it leaves no room for gray areas. There's not many gray areas, and I'm not saying that, but the thing is that the fellowship is based on whether there is full agreement. Whether you do these things, I'll be in fellowship with you. If you don't do these things, I'm out of fellowship with you. See, these rigid standards are more important than relationships with individuals. Again, look at chapter 2, verse 20, especially verse number 21. It says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are commands given by the false teacher. And Paul is saying, no, don't let anybody push you into that. You don't have to do anything. Everything's already provided to you. So they cultivate a judgmental attitude towards those who may not agree or cooperate with their plan. That's not grace. That's legalism. And then there's grace abusers. And know what they are? They are the ones who give license. Live the way you want. Do what you want. God's forgiven you. Don't worry about it. See, they go too far and set aside all self-control because one of the things the Spirit of God's going to give you is what? Self-control. That means you have authority over yourself to say no to sin and no to temptation. You don't have to go there. You can run from there. And you just serve the Lord. Look at, and this is why Scripture is telling us, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. Look what it says here about what not to do. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. He's saying this because of what the false teachers are espousing, to live like you want. And then he says, in the, he says impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. And then he says also, for it is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also walked when you were living in them. He says, you're not like that anymore. You're saints. You're faithful. Don't live like that or think like that and don't have, let anybody push you to the point where you can just live any way you want because now you want to live for the Lord and I want to please him. That's the difference. Also, their liberty 
what went to such an extreme, it really gave, uh, it, it pushed people again into serving their old sins. Again, look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. It says, do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with all its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a knowledge, a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So here, again, this, that is grace. When grace has changed us to the point where we know we have laid aside the old self and its evil practice, and we have a new self, a new identity in Christ. Also, if you are in the family of God, you not only have manifold grace, but secondly, in verse number two, you have peace. Faithful saints and brethren have been granted multifaceted peace, that with grace comes peace. And peace is the cessation of hostilities against God. It's freedom from fear of damnation. It's freedom from the liberation. It's the liberation, actually, of guilt. The saints are at peace with the God of peace. As Paul said in Romans, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So if a a person is thinking about this, it, it's really the blessed condition when God is our friend. And all is well with us in time here on earth and in eternity. Both of those things. And both of those are mediated by Christ. So if a person is at peace with God Almighty, who else do we have to be afraid of? No one is the answer. And Romans tells us, if God is for us, who could be against us? No one could be against us. The gospel of Jesus Christ plunders the evil one's kingdom. And because the strong man, the devil, is overcome and the captive souls are removed from his kingdom into the kingdom of God, and they become saints and faithful brethren. So why, why is the concept of peace with God so important? It's important because Satan wants Christians to think that the fight against holiness is worthless. It's hopeless. It's, it's a monumental impossibility. And only the stronger and better equipped Christians could do that. Well, that's a lie, too. You can all do that. And the truth is that every Christian is totally at peace with God and so cannot truly be shaken by any satanic tactic if the Christian stands upon that grace. So peace in the Christian sense connotes a messianic salvation, that is the salvation that Christ provides from the slavery of sin and death, that the peace that comes with true salvation is better understood in the several forms it takes in the life of a Christian and also mentioned in Scripture. And what is that? There are actually uh, three forms of peace. That is, a Christian experiences peace with God. Right? That's the firm awareness that there's nothing between a believer and God, but the peace brought about by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans tells us we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So the Christian, in other words, must have confidence about their relationship to God in this area. Regarding this concept, we must think that I am, if I am in any doubt about my salvation, I shall not be able to fight the enemy. I shall have no, I shall have to spend the whole time uh, struggling with myself instead of the things I ought to be struggling with. So a Christian must have clarity about their sins being forgiven, their souls being reconciled to God, and the Spirit of God now working sanctification in them, already making them saints and faithful. If we're going to stand against any temptation, we must know this. Hebrews tells us now the God of peace who brought us up from the dead. What is he going to do? Equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. He's working in us to do that. A second, secondly, besides peace with God, Christians also experience the peace of God. It's a little bit different. That means we're satisfied in God and his work. The Christian feels tranquility of God, of God in their hearts. It's, it's like it says in Philippians chapter 4, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehensions, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is the tranquility of God that transcends understanding. God's peace in a person is like a platoon of special force warriors guarding the entrance of our mind, our heart, and preventing any enemies that would promote anxiety from entering in. That's why practicing casting your care on him is a biblical practice. Because the believer's soul is at rest due to the peace of God. And that's why if you look at Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, that's why you and I could actually do this. It says in 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's a person at peace. They know where they stand before God. They know what the Lord's done for them. But there's a, there's a third peace kind of peace, and that's in a peace uh, obtained through the gospel that has uh that really helps a Christian understand and be aware that their struggles are not against flesh and blood. Because God has taken care of the believer's most important need, salvation, the Christian is freed up from all animosity towards others. So this peace is peace with other people. Again, Colossians chapter 3, look at verse number 13. You can't say this unless you have peace. It says this, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That means my desire is to want to be at peace with people, especially those who are brethren. Next, if you are in the family of God, back to Colossians chapter 1, verse number 2, it says that, this grace and peace comes from our Heavenly Father. So in our 
position, our new position, we have a new source of blessing because of Christ. And what is that source? God the Father. That grace and peace is from God the Father. And having God as Father only comes by having Jesus as Savior and Lord. Before that, he was not your Father in a salvific sense. So each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is involved with bringing believers the grace in which they stand. The source of this change and new standing is God the Father. In fact, once a person has come to Christ, that person can truly, for the first time in their life, call God Father. Because Jesus has appeased the Father's wrath toward that believing sinner. And the believer is in a new position with the Father. The Father has chosen, has adopted, has accepted that person. And the reason for that believer's acceptance and change and standing before the Father is the Lord Jesus Christ's work on their behalf. That Jesus is the believer's Lord and bears all the believer's punishment on the cross, reconciling the believer to God and bringing peace to them. Genuine peace. That's like when we come to the Lord's table, what do we do? What do we do at a table? You, the disciples lay down. We sit around the table Why? we're at peace with God. There's no animosity between us and him. It's taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the work of Jesus enables the new birth, and believers amazingly become the children of God, as the Gospel of John tells us. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. Christians are children of God and therefore have a new father, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have the father, you have the son. And if you have the son, you have the father. And if you have the father and the son, you have the spirit. That's what the scripture teaches. So you have it all. Now, one last thing in Colossians in our verse that I kind of skipped over. If you notice in verse number two, it says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. You're going to find that term all over Scripture. It is a very significant term. The source of this new identity, this new creation, is God himself. It's like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what are they? They're a new creature. They're a new creation a new creature, the old things pass away, behold, all things become new. So this is an important shift from a shift of stance and and change in sphere in which we live. As I said, we live between two things, heaven and earth, and now we're saints living for the Lord and sojourning here on this earth because the apostle Paul is viewing all people as either in Adam or in Christ. In other words, all who are in Christ are a new creation, and all who are in Adam are still linked to the old things, the old things being the old Adamic nature with all its corruption, all its old habits, all its old sinful being. 
with all its enslaving sins and those who are now associated with Christ, those who are in Christ, find themselves in a new position and a new sphere. That God is not simply patching up the old, he is creating a new. Old things are discarded. And old things do not become new. At conversion, they are actually discarded, and other things take their place. The newly created things take their place. Now, this false teacher in Colossians and his teaching made it possible for people to be comfortable in their old Adamic nature. They're still children of Adam. They're still in Adam. They're not in Christ. Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. There's no in-between. So the question is, how can we be in Christ and at the same time Christ in us? Usually when we hear the word in, we think in terms of spatial. Being in something or something being in you does not seem to be possible at the same time in the same way. But our union with Christ is not spatial, a spatial reality, but a relational, a spiritual reality. I never found an illustration that would sufficiently uh, come close to explaining the reality of the Christian life. And that is Christ in you you in Christ. Recently, in my readings, I came across an illustration that at least cracks the door open and sheds some light on the truth. The illustration goes like this. Picture a helicopter flying you into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You ask the pilot to bring the helicopter to a standstill, hovering just above the surface of the water, then you leap from the helicopter into the Pacific Ocean. You are now in the Pacific. You signal the pilot, and he turns the craft and speeds away. And your, your entire identity is now wrapped up in the fact that you are in the Pacific. You are surrounded by sim- seemingly endless miles of open water. There's nowhere to go. So now this defines your existence. This aids us in our understanding of the first foundational truth, and that is seeing ourselves in Christ. We are immersed in Christ. We have been put there by the Father. But what about the other truth, Christ in you? Picture yourself now taking an action that will actually go against everything you ever thought sanely and in accord with reality. And yet now, by an act of your will, you draw in a deep breath and turn yourself downward and swim with all your might, going as deep as you're able to go with one breath. You are now in the Pacific. Now open your mouth and draw in a huge breath. Now the Pacific is in you. And you say, ah, but now I'm also dead. (laughs) Precisely. Precisely. You are dead to yourself. 
you are alive in Christ. In fact, if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, look what it says. It says, first of all, you have died with Christ. If you have died with Christ through the elementary principles of the world, and then look at chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then secondly, you have not only died with Christ, you were buried with him, chapter 2, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. And then also in chapter 2, verse 12, in chapter 3, verse number 1, it says you have also been made alive with Christ, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And then chapter 3, verse number 1 of Colossians, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you go to Romans 6, you'll find the same thing. We're baptized into his death. We're buried with him, and then we're raised to walk in newness of life. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. So that would bear out a conscious awareness that your new identity as one in Christ and your new power and your new presence and your new position, Christ in you, and you in Christ, that means that Christ is your life. You in Christ, Christ in you, chapter 3, verse number 4, Colossians, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So this is what God does for us. This is our new position in Christ. Now we go and live who we are, saints inside and out, faithful brethren, part of the family of God. You have been given a barrel of grace that has no bottom. You are, are at peace with God. You are, have the peace of God. You have peace with others. The Father is the source of all this. So now you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, this one God who is yours. You are in him. He is in you. Christ now is your life. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And that will take you right into eternity. So this morning, do you know who you are? I pray you do. And as you live that way, depend on God because everything's available to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the powerful nature of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, that even in these two ver short verses, which is a greeting, you have in there the ingredients of identity for the believers who are going to receive this letter, that they need to know who they are before they even confront or identify false teaching. Oh, Lord, I pray for every one of us here that we would not walk, and walk around doubting these things, but we would walk around with boldness and confidence because we know these things, and this is who we are. And I pray, Lord, as we go out and we live this life, that you would use us in a significant way to not only bring the gospel to those who never heard it, 
but to build up the family of God and make it strong and to protect the family of God by discerning truth from error. Thank you, Lord, for what you are doing and what you're going to do. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.